39-year-old Mary Kay Wine was found murdered in the upstairs bedroom of her Lexington, Kentucky home on July 5, 1965. The Kay Wines, Mary and husband Dr. Madison Kay Wine III, had attended an Independence Day party with neighbors and friends Betty and Sam Strother. Late the next morning, Betty dropped by to check on our friend and found Mary Kay Wine sitting in the chair in her bedroom. Her head slumped to one side. Mary was still wearing the pretty yellow dress with black flowers she had worn to the party the night before. An autopsy would find she had been murdered, poisoned with carbolic acid. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard, and this is the mystery of the murder of Mary Kay Wine. Dr. Madison K. Wine III and his wife Mary were part of the elite social set in Lexington, Kentucky. Both were from well-known and respected families. Madison, named for his grandfather, a beloved poet known as the Keats of Kentucky. His father, Preston K. Wine, changed his name to Madison K. Wine II to honor the legacy of the poet who was so well-known and loved that President Teddy Roosevelt often quoted his poems about beauty and nature. Mary's father, George Swineboard, was a renowned thoroughbred auctioneer who headed up the sale of nine yearlings who would win the Kentucky Derby. Following his service as an Army medical tech in World War II, Madison K. Wine met Mary Swineboard at the University of Kentucky, where he was a graduate assistant in animal pathology which Mary was studying as well. By 1949, the two married, with Mary giving up her career track to support Madison as he got his MD at Tulane University in New Orleans in 1954 and his master's at Minnesota State. By the late 1950s, Madison had worked at the Mayo Clinic and was ready to return to Kentucky. Dr. Kaywine and Mary moved their two children, Madison IV, and Betsy, home to Lexington. In 1960, Dr. Kaywine became associate professor of the University of Kentucky School of Medicine and was on staff at the University Medical Center. Dr. Kaywine specialized in hematology, diseases of the blood, and blood components. He was passionate about his work as a hematologist, once saying he specialized in this field because blood cells always looked so beautiful to him. That passion would help him solve a mystery that had plagued a Kentucky family for generations. In the early 1960s, Dr. Kaywine researched and investigated the unique case of the Fugate family in Hazard, Kentucky. The Fugates were known as the Blue People of Kentucky because their family had skin that appeared blue. When Dr. Kaywine first visited Hazard, he met with a nurse named Ruth Pendergrass, who was desperate to have doctors more interested in the Fugates to try to find answers and help the family. Dr. Kaywine joked that he had to tromp around the hills looking for blue people until he found some family members who were comfortable enough to talk to him. They had been subjected to a lot of tests with no answers, and there was the shame associated with their family tree. 
Dr. Kaywine found members of the Fugate family who were willing to undergo blood tests. Through his research and testing, he confirmed the family had a rare hereditary disease that hinders hemoglobin from carrying oxygen to their skin. Rather than pink, their skin appeared blue. The Fugate's case was compounded by the genetic link and inbreeding. K-Wine was able to come up with a simple treatment. He had the family members take what he called the perfect antidote, a daily pill that counteracted the effect of their blue skin, a pill of methylene blue. And it worked, counteracted the enzyme deficiency and caused their skin to pink up as it should. Dr. Kaywine published his groundbreaking research in the archives of internal medicine in April 1964, which would bring the doctor a lot of attention and respect in the medical community and prestige for his university. By July 4th, 1965, Madison and Mary Kaywine had been married for 15 years, and the 39-year-olds were enjoying the life that Madison's success afforded them. They had a big house on Chino Road in Lexington and enjoyed socializing with their neighbors and close friends, Sam and Betty Strother. Social pages in Lexington newspapers would feature news of the two couples vacationing together. They were very close. Now, on the evening of July 4th, the K-Wine's 14-year-old son, Madison K-Wine IV, spent the night with friends at a nearby lake. Mary's usual babysitter was unavailable, so she called on a family friend, 62-year-old Phoebe Edwards, to watch nine-year-old daughter Betsy and the Strothers' two children. The Strothers picked up the K-Wines around 6 p.m. and headed to Lexington's exclusive Idle Hour Country Club for that 4th of July party. And the couples partied. They spent about $40 on mixed drinks, with witness accounts recording each of them having about 10 mixed alcoholic drinks before they left the club around 11.30. Now, the timing and accounts of what happened next would be cloudy for the Strothers and Dr. K-Wine because of all that alcohol and the fact that the drinking continued once they arrived at the Strothers' home sometime around midnight. Sam, Betty, and Madison had more to drink but Mary mentioned she wasn't feeling well and wanted to go home. And already drunk, Sam drove Mary to the K-Wine home three blocks away and went inside for another drink. Sam called a taxi for Phoebe Edwards, the babysitter, around 12.30 that morning. Phoebe would later say she saw Mary K-Wine before she left and Mary looked fine, didn't appear unwell. When Phoebe left the house around 1.10 a.m., Sam was having another beer and Mary had poured herself a bourbon and water. The two were upstairs in the master bedroom because it was hot that night and the K-Wine's bedroom was the only room in the house with an air conditioner. According to Sam Strother, Mary sat down in her armchair in the bedroom as they continued to drink and talk for about 20 minutes. When Sam left the house, Mary was sitting in that chair, sipping her bourbon. That would be the last time anyone saw Mary Kaywine alive. When Sam made it home, he found Dr. Kaywine had enjoyed quite a hefty nightcap too and decided to stay over at the Strothers. Sam helped Madison into a bed 
in the family room. Now, all of this was not unusual for these friends who spent a lot of time together and enjoyed their drinks. Sometimes they had too much and slept it off at their friend's house. Betty would be the first one up at the Strother house late on the morning of July 5th. After all that drinking and knowing Mary had said she wasn't feeling well the night before, Betty called Mary to check in on her and the kids. One of the kids answered the phone and told Betty that Mary hadn't come out of her room and the door was shut. When Betty realized the kids hadn't had breakfast, she told them not to wake up Mary and sent Sam over to the K-Wine's house. He drove up, honked the horn, the kids came running out, went to the Strothers, and had breakfast there. Madison Kaywine was still sleeping at the Strothers when Betty left to take the kids to swimming lessons at the local pool. On her way home, she decided to stop by to see Mary, and as she walked into the Kaywine home, she expected to see her friend and joke about their wild night out. The Kaywines always left their door unlocked, so Betty walked in, called for Mary, but got no response. She walked upstairs to Mary's bedroom, and that's where she found her friend, still fully clothed, sitting in a chair in the bedroom, her body cold and lifeless. She looked so peaceful that Betty would later say it took her a moment to realize Mary was dead. Betty Strother called her husband and told him to drive Madison Kaywine home. From that point on, things got really complicated. And as one Kentucky reporter put it, Mary Kaywine's death appeared to be one of Kentucky's biggest mysteries and smallest murder investigations. When Sam Strother walked into the Kaywine home with Madison, they headed to the master bedroom where Madison did something very strange. He immediately moved towards the lamp table next to the chair where Mary had been sitting. He grabbed an empty beer can that was sitting there and a half full tumbler with bourbon Mary had been drinking from and handed it to Sam Strother. He told his friend he needed to dispose of it. Madison Kaywine called a family friend who lived nearby, but when he didn't get an answer, he called on Dr. William Winternitz, who worked with him at the medical center. The doctor would pronounce Mary Kaywine dead around 10.30 a.m. Dr. Winternitz would tell police that he noted a small drop of blood on Mary's slip, which led him to further examine her body. He found two needle marks, one on each of Mary's thighs. The doctor looked around Mary's body, the chair, the room, expecting to find a hypodermic needle, but there wasn't one out in the open. He then looked around expecting to see a tumbler of some kind because Sam told him Mary had been drinking her bourbon when he last saw her, but the doctor noted there was no tumbler in the room and he looked for a suicide note because Madison Kaywine kept saying over and over again in the room that day that Mary must have taken her own life but there was no note. Dr. Winternitz notified police of Mary Kaywine's death at about 11.30 that morning. In his statement, he noted his initial findings and pointed out the state of Mary's bedroom. Everything was in place, and the bed was still neatly made 
with no creases of any kind, which indicated Mary Kay Wine had never moved from the chair after Sam left the room. Madison K. Wine continued to insist to police Mary had committed suicide, and when asked for permission to perform an autopsy, he agreed. Following an autopsy on July 7th, the coroner ruled Mary K. Wine's death was not natural and had not been suicide. Mary K. Wine died of carbolic acid poisoning sometime between 2 and 6 a.m. Carbolic acid was a common antiseptic used in the medical field to sterilize surgical instruments and clean wounds. But when ingested, it's lethal. The autopsy noted one puncture wound on the lower outside mid part of Mary's right thigh and another on the outer left mid thigh. Mary was injected with something, but the pathologist was unable to confirm what was injected into her system. The autopsy also revealed Mary to be acutely intoxicated. Her blood alcohol level was at about 0.4%. The findings left Dr. Madison K. Wine, and I'm quoting here, questioning the ability of the pathologist at the University of Kentucky Medical Center who performed this autopsy. K. Wine insisted Mary had taken her own life and demanded another doctor review the autopsy. This back and forth on the cause of death and the possibility that Mary K. Wine was murdered shocked her friends and the Lexington community because there had been a death notice printed in the local news which asked that all memorials be sent to the American Cancer Society. This led most folks to believe Mary K. Wine had died of cancer. When newspapers started running rather sensational articles about the autopsy and Madison K. Wine's insistence, that his wife was not murdered, the news sent shockwaves through Lexington. On July 8th, Mary K. Wine was memorialized during a funeral service at Lexington's Christ Episcopal Church. Following Mary's burial, Lexington Coroner Chester Hagar notified police this was a coroner's case. When again questioned by police, Madison K. Wine insisted Mary's death was not murder. It must have been suicide. While awaiting official review of Mary's autopsy, Madison K. Wine called Mary's parents on July 10th to inform them he had met with a pathologist, reviewed Mary's autopsy, and they agreed. Mary had taken too many Alka-Seltzers, which caused gas to build up in her system and led to her sudden death by heart attack. Madison's explanation conflicted with the official autopsy, which still listed Mary K. Wine's death as unnatural, not by her own hand, and as a result of acute gastritis due to ingestion of carbolic acid. Death by carbolic acid poisoning, it can be slow and horrific, or it could kill within half an hour of being administered to the victim. In the case of Mary Kay Wine, the question remains, when was the poison administered and how much? Mary's autopsy notes she ingested carbolic acid and you only need to use a small dose to kill someone. In small doses, carbolic acid lingers in the body before the victim becomes violently ill, lapses into a coma, 
and dies. If you drink it, your mouth and throat would quite literally burn and you would taste it because it's bitter. But that bitter taste and smell is masked when carbolic acid is diluted with alcohol. In Mary's case, it's likely that she had been dosed at the country club, which may be why she mentioned not feeling well and heading home before Madison that night. The symptoms of the poison mirror symptoms of intoxication. If she was dosed at the country club, no one around her would have noticed anything strange because they would have assumed Mary had too much to drink. And Mary was a pretty heavy social drinker, just like her husband and the Strathers. Doctors have noted this method of killing someone shows a high level of intelligence and detail because the killer would know the victim would be seen as drunk, not someone who was slowly dying by way of poisoning. In the case of Mary Kay Wine, it would mean the killer also knew her drinking habits. Pathologists in the Kay Wine case noted there was no evidence of burning in Mary's mouth or esophagus, which would have happened if the carbolic acid had not been diluted. The coroner's theory was that someone had diluted the acid in one of the drinks Mary had that night. As the diluted mixture entered Mary's bloodstream, it turned volatile as it burned her stomach, and it's believed the pain and effects on her body would have overcome Mary as she lapsed into a coma before her heart stopped beating. But due to the amount of alcohol in her system, there was no way to determine when the poison was administered or the dose she had been given. That, along with the hazy recall of the Strathers and Madison K. Wine, complicated the investigation. Who killed Mary K. Wine? And what was the motive for the murder? Mary was well-loved and respected by her family and friends. Well, all but one. The police found that each time they spoke to Dr. K. Wine, he changed his story. And the more they looked into Mary and Madison's marriage and movements, it became clear the K. Wine marriage wasn't as idyllic as Lexington Society pages made it seem. Madison K. Wine III didn't respect his wife, and she wasn't the only woman he had started to cut out of his life. The ins and outs of Madison K. Wine's affairs and the fallout from these relationships, well, it was a hot mess. Early in the investigation, Mary's father, George Swineboard, told police Madison and Mary's marriage was happy. But he later admitted that he knew Madison had an affair with a colleague sometime over the past year or two. In fact, Dr. Madison Kaywine had been cheating on Mary for years, and she knew it, even confided in a member of the family that Madison's latest liaison was with a married woman who was a patient, and she knew it wasn't the first time he had stepped out on her. And Madison wasn't hiding it. He asked for a divorce, but Mary never pushed for it or filed. Dr. Kaywine's first affair was with Dr. Emma Lappett, a fellow hematologist and 39-year-old divorcee who worked with him at the medical center. But accounts from colleagues and friends 
point to the two ending their relationship in the fall of 1964, which wasn't Emma Lappett's choice. Their relationship ended because Dr. Kaywine began a relationship with Barbara Liepman, a patient he was treating for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Barbara was the wife of Dr. Kaywine's colleague, Dr. Herschel Liepman. When Dr. Kaywine was confronted by police about these relationships, he confirmed he had been with other women and told investigators his relationship with Barbara Liepman had only been going on for a few weeks and the police report states Dr. Kaywine said he was in love with Barbara. He also said the relationship had come to an end when Mary died. Allegedly, it was only after her death that Madison Kaywine learned Mary knew about Barbara Liepman. Mary had told her grandmother that she knew about this affair and it scared her. She was scared that Barbara's husband, Dr. Herschel Liepman, would kill Madison if he learned about the affair. And she was also afraid that Madison, her well-respected husband, who had made these groundbreaking breakthroughs in medicine, would lose his medical license and the family would lose everything if someone reported his affair with a patient. Madison Kaywine's claim that he and Barbara had called off their affair was a lie. The two continued to meet as the police investigated the murder of Mary Kaywine. Barbara Liepman told police that just a few days after Mary died, she met Madison and asked if Mary had been suicidal. When Madison told Barbara that Mary wasn't the suicidal type, Barbara talked to police and shared that she was afraid something might happen to her. Her lover's wife was dead, and her lover's last mistress was threatening her to stay away from Madison Kaywine. Dr. Emma Lappett and Barbara Liepman were at odds over the man they loved, Madison Kaywine. Emma Lappett had never stopped loving Madison, and when he ditched her for Barbara, Emma was devastated. She started following Madison home, driving by his house and the Leapman house to see if Madison and Barbara were together. Emma went directly to Barbara Leapman and demanded she stop seeing Madison. And soon after, Barbara's maid reported odd phone calls in which a caller asked about Barbara's schedule and where she had been during the day. Emma Lappett told the department secretary she and Madison K. Wine shared to never put calls through from Barbara Liepman to Dr. Kaywine, and arranged a meeting with Dr. Herschel Liepman in which she told him his wife was having an affair with one of their colleagues. Barbara Liepman put up with a lot from Emma Lappett, but never said a word. After all, Barbara was married and cheating on her husband with a married man. But a line was crossed when Barbara's maid answered the phone one day and heard a familiar voice say, tell Mrs. Liepman she better watch the company she keeps and be careful who she's seen with because her life is in danger. Well, Barbara didn't feel the need to hide things anymore. She went to the police to file a report, and it's not the only call to the Liepmans that's on file with the Lexington police. On the day Mary K. Wine was discovered dead, Dr. Herschel Liepman was at the medical center when he got a call from the operator around 2.30 in the morning, 
telling him his wife had called and he was needed at home. The doctor felt there was something odd about this call, like someone was trying to trick him into walking in on his wife and her lover. Dr. Liebman decided to go to the police and ask for advice on how to handle the situation. In a police report from July 5th, 1965, the reporting officer noted that Dr. Liebman appeared nervous and seemed to be under, quote, heavy mental stress and appeared very disturbed. The report also noted the doctor didn't seem upset over the affair itself, telling police he had already sought counsel with a lawyer who advised him to avoid contact or any physical harm to this man and focus on gathering evidence for court. Dr. Liebman then told the officer taking the report, he honestly just felt like breaking Madison K. Wine in two and killing him. When Dr. Liebman was leaving, he was still so upset, he sideswiped a police officer's car before he returned to the hospital for his 6 a.m. rounds. There was a lot of tension and rage stirring around Madison K. Wine and his relationships, and plenty of people with motive to hurt him or his family. It's important to know that after being questioned by police, Sam and Betty Strother were never considered suspects. There was no motive ever found for them to harm Mary or Madison. And Barbara Liepman wasn't hiding her affair with Madison from police. In fact, she was open about it, even mentioned she had been pregnant and had gotten an abortion not long before the murder, but she never said if the baby was Madison's. There seemed to be three people in Mary Kay Wine's life who had the greatest motive and something to gain from her death. Her husband, Dr. Madison Kay Wine, along with Dr. Emma Lappett and Dr. Herschel Liebman. All of them well-versed in medicine and how to administer carbolic acid in a diluted manner that would make their victim appear intoxicated. Now, Madison K. Wine had no history of violence, nor had he made threatening statements, but his actions and constant changes in his story made him look suspicious. Remember, Madison had Sam Strother remove Mary's bourbon glass and the empty beer can, and then told police there had been no glass on the table next to his wife when her body was found. He later admitted, when pressed by police, that he told Sam to dispose of them but offered no reason as to why he did that. And on the day his wife died, Dr. K. Wine told police in great detail how he was a doctor, but never allowed medicine or hazardous materials into the house to ensure his children's safety. But the doctor who pronounced Mary K. Wine and reported her death to police, Dr. Winternitz, noted medications in the bathroom, and the police report and photos from the crime scene show medication all over the K-Wine house. In those injection sites on Mary's body, when Madison was asked if he kept syringes in the house, he said no. But the official police report notes there was a syringe found in a bedside table drawer in the master bedroom that had Madison K-Wine's fingerprints on it. Madison repeatedly told police he had no idea how that syringe ended up in his house and insisted it was planted by someone who wanted to frame him for his wife's murder. Could that have been Dr. Liebman? 
Liebman's growing stress over his wife's affair with K-Wine and his threats of violence and harming the doctor did have police asking if Liebman could have murdered Mary K-Wine to try to frame Madison. But the most suspicious of all suspects was Dr. Emma Lappett. Her erratic behavior had Madison Kaywine and Barbara Leapman concerned before Mary died. By September of 1965, as everyone awaited the coroner's inquest into Mary Kaywine's death, Barbara Leapman was being treated by Dr. Kaywine for Hodgkin's lymphoma. She made an appointment with a neurosurgeon at the medical center to rule out any other illnesses before her next round of treatments with Dr. Kaywine. When the results were sent to Dr. Kaywine's office, they were intercepted by Emma Lappett, who reached out to the neurosurgeon's office and informed them that she was going to be treating Barbara Liebman because they had found that her disease was spreading. Dr. Emma Lappett ordered that Barbara be treated with a drug called nitrogen mustard. It was used as a chemotherapy treatment for lymphoma patients, but Barbara Liebman also knew it was powerful and classified as a Schedule I substance. Barbara Liebman refused the treatment's suggestion, saying she would only proceed if Dr. Kaywine informed her it was her best course of treatment. When Madison learned of Emma's treatment plan, he was angry. He insisted to Barbara that Emma must have misread tests or misunderstood something, and she made a mistake in ordering such a dangerous treatment for Barbara Liebman, a treatment that could have killed her. It does seem as though Emma was willing to go to extremes to control the people around her, the people who got in the way of her desires. Could Emma Lappett have gone so far as to kill Mary Kaywine as revenge for being scorned? or in a twisted attempt to get Madison Kaywine back in her life. There were all these questions, these scenarios, plenty of suspects in the murder of Mary Kaywine, but there would never be an arrest. A grand jury would meet in late September, 1965. 14 witnesses testified, including Emma Lappett, Madison Kaywine III, Madison Kaywine IV, the babysitter, Phoebe Edwards, the K-Wine's neighbors and friends, Sam and Betty Strother, Dr. Herschel Liepman, and the manager of the country club. Barbara Liepman was also subpoenaed, but wasn't able to appear due to her chemotherapy treatments. By the end of the grand jury session, there were no indictments. Over the course of the next year, three more grand jury sessions would be held in an attempt to return indictments. None would be handed down. By the end of 1966, the case seemed to fade from interest of the media, and life was moving on. Dr. Madison Kaywine was granted leave from the University of Kentucky in July 1966. He sold the house and said he was moving his family to New York to take a new job. Dr. Emma Lappett studied in Switzerland for a while before returning to the Lexington Medical Center to pick up where she left off in the hematology department. If Emma Lappett was involved in the murder of Mary Kaywine and did it to win back a now free Madison, her plan didn't work. 
We know of no contact or connection between Madison Kaywine and Emma Lappett after their grand jury testimonies. Madison Kaywine did move on to New York, where he met and married his next wife, Joan. Eventually, Madison would go to work for Dow Pharmaceuticals. He died of cancer in July 1985. More than 55 years after Mary Kaywine was murdered in her Lexington, Kentucky home, the mystery of who killed her remains. It's still one of Kentucky's greatest murder mysteries. And it's not for lack of trying to solve the case. Despite newspaper accounts that painted investigators as lazy and unwilling to chase down Mary's killer, there were hundreds of hours of manpower dedicated to the investigation. But the social elite involved in the case did lead police to remain silent, which backfired. Investigators compiled page after page of witness and suspect interviews, crime scene photos, and countless tips. They chased down every lead, amassing thousands of pages of evidence. Detectives who worked this case always felt they were just that one tip away from breaking the case wide open but that tip never came. Maybe that's because of the social status of Mary and Madison's families and Madison K. White himself, whose life's work had helped so many people like the Fugate family. And Dr. K. White was part of discovering breakthroughs in treatments of Parkinson's disease. There was a lot of respect for these families and most of the folks involved had something to lose if they talked. So silence fell over Mary Kaywine's case. Anytime a reporter or anyone interested in looking at the case pursued records and investigation files, Lexington police would push back, but never explain why they refused to release the files. So decades passed and potential witnesses and suspects died. In 2012, Kentucky Forward featured the cold case of the murder of Mary Kaywine. They were allowed to review Lexington police files and learned that in 2009, Lexington Police Lieutenant James Curlis tried to pursue one of the last living suspects for answers. He learned that Emma Lappett was still alive. The then 83-year-old was living in California, where she had a long and successful career as a leukemia specialist. Lieutenant Curlis and another detective tracked Emma down at her home near Los Angeles. Remember, Emma Lappett testified in each of the grand jury investigations, and if you were to Google her name today, it will show up right alongside the names of Madison and Mary Kaywine. And that name appears over and over again in police reports surrounding the investigation of the murder of Mary Kaywine. When Emma Lappett was approached by detectives in 2009, they explained they were still trying to solve the murder of Mary and wanted her help. Emma Lappett denied knowing anything about the K-Wines or even knowing Madison. When detectives pushed her on this, mentioned her association with Madison, she said she did recall working with Madison at the medical center, but wasn't close and had no information that could help them. When detectives pushed a little harder, mentioning they had statements in their records in which she acknowledged her affair with Madison Kaywine, 
Emma invited them to leave and told them they were wasting taxpayer dollars. Any hope Lieutenant Curlis had of a break in the case faded the next year. Emma Lappett died in November 2010. Now, all that remains of Mary Kay Wine's case are thousands of pages of investigative files that have led to no answers and no justice for Mary Kay Wine. The soap opera-level drama surrounding her husband, his mistresses, and the jealousy among them must have been heartbreaking for Mary Kay Wine. After all, she's the one whose unexpected end should matter most but was lost in all the drama. She was thrown aside by her husband, made to feel unwanted and unloved. And just as she was trying to work out what her future would look like, which path to take, someone made that choice for her. Someone added a bit of carbolic acid to a cocktail, and Mary Kay Wine, in her pretty yellow dress with black flowers, sat down in the place she felt most comfortable that chair in her bedroom with the air conditioning blowing on a hot July night. And Mary Kay Wine paid the price for the indiscretion of others. When you think of the silence that has prevented justice for Mary Kay Wine, it seems the words of the great Kentucky poet Madison Kay Wine are appropriate. As he wrote in his poem, Conscious, Within the soul are throned two powers, one love, one hate. Be God of these and veiled between a presence towers, the shadowy keepers of the keys. With wild command or calm persuasion, this one may argue that compel, vain are concealments and evasion. For each he opens heaven and hell. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can read more about this mystery and sources for the episode in the full show notes at southernmysteries.com. And a reminder, this is an independent podcast, and I rely on member support to keep producing episodes of the show. You can support the show on Patreon and hear monthly bonus content called Southern Mysteries Shorts at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. And another way you can help the show is to rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening now and tap on subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Thanks so much for listening. 